Welcome to the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 44 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. This week we're speaking with character actor turned director John Carroll Lynch. His new movie Lucky isn't just a thoughtful rumination on death, but it also gives us the last bravura performance by Harry Dean Stanton. Clearly Lynch was paying attention on those movie sets and TV shows all these years. Before our chat, I wanted to talk about the biggest Hollywood news in quite some time, Harvey Weinstein. The mega producer behind hits like Shakespeare in Love and Kill Bill, well, He's taking a leave of absence from his own company. He got busted for a whole bunch of sexual abuse allegations by the New Yorker magazine and also the New York Times. And it sounds like he's guilty as charged, at least by his statement. He didn't exactly say he didn't do it. As a matter of fact, he apologized for his behavior. And one of the weirdest apologies I've seen in quite some time, it was a bit aggressive, it was a bit pathetic, and also quite a bit political, too. He's lashing out at both President Trump and the NRA. Well, that's not the point when you're trying to apologize for some pretty egregious behavior against people in your employees. So that's a real problem. So what do we make of all this? Well, here's a list. For starters, his Hollywood career is done over kaput. He is past tense. There's no way he's getting back to his perch, at least anywhere near what he was before. And he was a major power player in Hollywood. Also, plenty of Hollywood folks knew about this or heard about this or suspected this or heard the whispers that he's been up to some really bad things. And they kept quiet. That speaks volumes. Also, it's getting easier and easier these days for Hollywood actresses to speak out about sexism and much worse. That's a good thing. We're going to be hearing more and more about it, and we should. And actually, I talked to an actress a few weeks back, Angela Dixon, in episode 39 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. She shared a story that was chilling, but not nearly as egregious as what we're hearing from the people who worked with Harvey Weinstein. Also, the Hollywood press, which has been doing a fairly good job of not just the original reporting on the story, but the follow-ups and showing about all his ties to the Democratic machine. I'm impressed, and I hope it continues, but you know what? They've had this story for a while. Sharon Waxman from TheRap.com talked about having some kind of knowledge about this for years and years, and, and as someone kind of quipped on Twitter, well... Too bad she doesn't have an outlet to talk about it. Yeah, she's got the rap. It's her company. She's the person in charge. And the rap.com didn't break this story. What does that tell you? Also, the next time a celebrity gets in the soapbox, particularly one who's been cozying up to Harvey for all these years, well, I think what he or she has to say is going to have a little less impact than before. What else can you say about this? Well, I think this is the first domino to fall. I suspect more and more women are going to come out. If these eight women originally were saying that he was up to no good, then I think there's going to be a lot more women who either endured it or maybe even acquiesced to it under the pressure that they may not have a career without agreeing to some of his requests. It's all creepy. It's all terrible. And I think this story is going to grow and grow from here. But I wanted to focus on something else about Harvey Weinstein's situation. You know, 
Back a few years ago, after a terrible shooting that involved the deaths of many people, he talked about creating a violent movie summit. This would be a get-together of some of the biggest names in Hollywood. And I think he mentioned Martin Scorsese, who obviously is a great filmmaker, but also one who makes a lot of violent stories. He said, we need to get together and talk and say, hey, is our work partly responsible for the culture in play? Should we be making less violent movies? What, what is our culpability with the situation? If any, we need to have that conversation. And I applauded that. I think it was actually rather smart because I, while it's certainly undetermined exactly how Hollywood and the gun culture are combined, well, shouldn't we talk about it? Shouldn't we have some conversations? And shouldn't the filmmakers at least be aware of what they put on the screen, what impact it could have on people? But of course... That big summit never happened. He didn't even talk about it anymore. And the press let him off the hook. All the times he talked to the media, no one seemed to ask him that question. I've never read about it. If I did, send me that link. I, I want to read it. I want to read what he said because I don't recall any information following that regarding the lack of a summit in question. But that wasn't his only comment about violence in the movies. Later... He talked about getting out of the violent movie business himself. Now, he's produced Kill Bill 1 and 2 and some other Quentin Tarantino movies. Quentin Tarantino movies are violent to the core. That's just him and his brand. But what Harvey Weinstein said is, I can't do these kind of movies anymore. I, I can't make these movies and then try to speak out against gun violence. It doesn't work for me. I have to take a personal responsibility. And then some time passed. And then he produced The Hateful Eight, which was just as violent as every other Quentin Tarantino movie. Did anyone question him about that? Was he pinned down by a reporter about his hypocrisy? No. Well, now we know he's a hypocrite many times over. It's official. But that hardly helps the woman he's hurt along the way. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast. The right take on entertainment. The latest hit tip of the week is Gerald's Game. It's a new Stephen King adaptation on Netflix right now. And it's not your typical Stephen King story. You're not going to see lots of ghosts and goblins or blood splattering here or there. There's a little bit of it, but certainly not as much as your usual King quotient. It's a story about a woman who is chained to her bed as part of a sexual experimentation with her husband, played by Bruce, Bruce Greenwood. She is Carla Gorgino, a great actress who's terrific here as well. And of course... He passes away, and she's left on the bed in the handcuffs all alone with no food, no water, and possibly no chance for rescue. That's the setup. And of course, it's a very creative solution as to how to tell a story from here when you've got basically one simple setting. This is a smart film directed by Mike Flanagan, who's a really terrific young up-and-coming horror director. He also did Hush on Netflix, which is excellent as well. So if you haven't seen that one, check it out. This is one of the better Stephen King adaptations by far. It's smart, it's thoughtful, and intriguing. And this, from what I understand, stays pretty close to the King's source material with a twist or two, which might even have made the story better. So check out Gerald's Game, available right now on Netflix Streaming. Now let's get to my chat with John Carroll Lynch. He's the guy you've seen countless times on screens big and small, including The Walking Dead and The Founder with Michael Keaton. He's an imposing guy, really big, well over six feet, but you know what? He's got really impressive range as well. He can be tender, he can be tough, and he can be downright scary. And if you've seen him as Twisty the Clown in American Horror Story, I think you know what I mean. Now he's making his directorial debut with Lucky. 
Harry Dean Stanton is the star here. It's about a much older man who's looking at, well, maybe his final months on Earth. He's getting sicker. He's getting older. He's frail. But you know what? He's still feisty. He's still strong. And he's still alive. And he knows that means something. And but not just with him, but with his community as well. It's a beautiful film. It's quiet. It's haunting. It's very smart. And it's an amazing first movie from any director, let alone a character actor making the switch for the first time. Here's my interview with John Carroll Lynch. Well, first of all, thank you for joining us, John. You know, you think about a first-time director, the projects that he could or couldn't do. You've got a movie with a really tight shooting schedule and lucky. You've got a star, a story that's personal and fictional all the same. Do all those challenges kind of intrigue you as you approach it? Do they scare you? Is it a little bit of a combo of the two? Um, the, you know, it was, a, it was a tricky bit of business, but the, the screenplay and the opportunity to work with Harry um, uh, was too good to pass up. And obviously, uh, it's something that I've wanted to do for a while, and it was just too uh, too juicy a project to to turn down. So, you know, I was happy to take on all the challenges, both in terms of the schedule and uh, and in terms of. Uh, Harry Dean. You know, when you think about actors and what they bring to a movie, you know, you watch a Cary Grant movie, there's a certain a presence, a style, you've seen his movies before. You know, he, Harry brought so much to each role, and I think this one is, it comes out in a much more magnified way. Talk about it from a director's point of view. You've seen him on screen, like all of us, for years. When you're working with him one-on-one, what makes him so special? Why, why did he bring something? So, so different and so unique, and, and why people are, you know, people are mourning his passing on social media. You know, he wasn't a superstar, but I, I, but we resonated with him so strongly. What, what was it about him that you could see working with him so closely? Well, there's the first and foremost, he carries with him the, the history of American film, both in terms of his uh, his lifetime. That is, you know, when he when he was born, um, they were still silent films you know <laughs> so he has he lived the entire history of of talkies and uh, so he brings that with him he also brings the, the, the all those years of being um, um, you know westerns and and rough guys and and villains with him as well uh, with him when you see him he has a menace and a danger as well as the beauty of his of his heart, the warmth of his heart. So that's all coming with him. But as an as an actor, to watch him work and to be able to, um, uh, you know, as a director, to watch each frame over and over and over again, I I just uh, marvel at his uh, fundamental ability to never lie, mm-hmm. to never act, and to always tell the truth. Just a pure, pure presence on screen. It, it was a lesson. Watching the movie, one of the things that I took away was the sense of community of these people working together, bickering, arguing, you know, having great shared stories. And understand that the people behind the scenes, the actors, were lining up to work with him and, and be in this project. Does that help you tell the story as a director? Does that sort of almost like you're, you're building a foundation and, and multiple bricks have already been laid? Well, any successful film I've ever been in, um, the purpose of the project has been clearly uh, set out, and every single person on the crew and in the cast is telling the same story. 
you know, is is there to tell them to make the mm-hmm. You still there? Yep. Okay, great. Um, everybody is there to make the same movie. And that was true in this case as well. Um, we were there to uh, to make the movie um, to celebrate Harry Dean both as an actor and as a as a person, and to uh, reflect uh, his life in a fictional circumstance. Uh, it's almost as if we were working with well, we were we were working with one of the best actors uh, in the 20th century on a project that was inspired by him personally. Mm-hmm. So um, his willingness to to reflect that, to be that vulnerable in in his work, was matched by everybody's willingness to go all the way out on the end of the beam to do everything they could, not only to be in the film, but also to do the work that they did. So it was it was impressive. Yeah, you, you're looking at your career. You've worked with some of the biggest names, the biggest directors in Hollywood, and now even though this is your first film, you've got decades behind you in front of the camera you've got the experience of working with the the eastwoods the you know the the scorsese's was there a particular director who you think either matched your style or sort of influenced you when you first came on the set or did you kind of just absorb it all and kind of bring something new to it you know i i I really can't um i i I really can't single anybody out other than that i've been watching people work for years Mm -hmm. being a part of these projects and to be able to have worked with all of these masters um, uh, has has certainly been influential to me. Um, this screenplay, uh, every single screenplay calls out for a style, calls out for visual choices and a vocabulary, and and um, that's what this screen you know, the screenplay in this movie calls out for this vocabulary. I guess we'll find out in my second feature. Mm-hmm. whether or not that's my vocabulary or not <laughs> because you can't tell you can't tell the style like for instance uh, as, as an example peter P- peter bogdanovich masterful director w- when he did last picture show and then when he did paper moon there certainly was a transference of transitional piece of style but then he did what's up doc and that is not the same you know, uh, I mean that actually that was between the two because uh, he Madeline Kahn uh, was introduced as part of What's Up Doc. I mean, how wonderful for that to happen as you as a director when you get to use the four words and introducing Madeline Kahn in your credits. So you know, he, he his style, what you know, his style of filmmaking in those three pictures is vastly different, and yet there's something spiritually the same about them all. Uh, and, and you know, I guess that's what I would say. I mean, uh, this movie, the style of it, it it required a kind of silence in the frame. It required, you know, it was a performance-driven film, and um, it was important that the camera not draw attention to itself. That it's that's not what it's intended to do for the feature. I, I read that uh, you want to do might have a different one. I was reading that you want to do more films after directing this. Is that? excite you to kind of develop that voice to kind of learn what what your sort of aesthetic is on screen after acting for so many years without a doubt you know i started as an actor without any sense of what um my aesthetic would be uh, both in terms of the acting style that i would uh, that i ended up uh, you know kind of wandering into following you know searching through uh, uh, the opportunities i've had to come to whatever to, to whatever style of acting i you know anybody else wants to describe 
but um, for uh, for to direct, uh, I would love to have the opportunity to continue to hone that and find out where to go from here. Um, that being said, the best thing about directing for me is the opportunity to tell stories that aren't attached to a six foot four, fifty four year old, two hundred fifty pound man. <laughs> that I can have the opportunity to to contribute to stories in a deep and meaningful way that tells the stories of other people. I've always had a desire uh, from the time I started acting to uh, to experience as best I can in this limited way that acting allows you mm-hmm. the lives of other people and the stories of other people. And, um, and directing is an outgrowth for me of that desire. It's to uh, express and experience the lives of other people and um, and to do it in a meaningful way that has that hopefully has an impact on 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 the audience that comes to see them. So uh, that's that's just a direct outgrowth of that desire. Yeah, uh, it's impossible to watch Lucky without thinking of not just the character's mortality, but your own mortality. No matter what age you are when you watch the movie, did it change the way you think about the sort of the bigger issues and make the movie of this consequence? Uh, I. Uh, what I what I was most moved by when I first read the screenplay, and that was when I was considering acting in it. This was before they asked me to direct. What I was moved by, uh, along with the opportunity to work with Harry Dean, was the the sense that this this movie asks me to uh, ask questions about how I'm going to live today, right? Mm-hmm. Not not how I'm going to end up dealing with my mortality when it comes, but how I'm going to um, how I'm going to live today with that mortality in mind. Um, that that sense of this moment being precious and what am I going to do with it should be what every single person does with every moment. And it's it's just that my own death is hard to keep in mind. Right? It slips away from me like a, like uh, you know it slips. It's like in my peripheral vision, and it's hard to keep it in focus. Because um, I think the, you know, the machine of my body doesn't want to go there. Mm-hmm. So this movie has an, is, is, a, is a warm and beautiful uh, a story about a man who looks it straight in the eye and comes to a joyful place in living, which, uh, I mean, how much, how much I mean, I, I can't think of a better story to tell, you know, and I, and I think that in some ways... His atheism, the character's atheism, focuses even focuses that even more so because he doesn't have a second act, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's dramatic circumstances. He knows he he's not going anywhere. This is it. So he is limited. His time is limited. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I want to just touch real quickly on uh, American Horror Story. <laughs> Your character's back to a city clown. It, you know, and obviously the theme of this of this of this season is political, but it, it expands from there. And I know you can't state too much because you'll get, <laughs> get in trouble. But yeah. what can you talk about as far as sort of the how the character and and the phobia, how it all ties into the political game? Is there anything you can kind of share? Well, I don't know. I mean, I would say that uh, there's certainly some commentary by, by the writers about uh, about people being clowns. I'll leave that to to you to decide uh, what that would be, but that we're terrified of them, and uh, mm-hmm. and maybe we might be uh, terrified of the clowns that are running the country. I don't know, but but I would say that um, the paranoia, right, our unwillingness, like the, the, you know, I, it seems to me that what what I've seen of the show that, that there. 
there's an unwillingness on our part to really look at each other with compassion. We are on teams now, and that's really bad for us um, because it's not, you know, politics, uh, you know, the partisanship is fine, but when it becomes tribe or when it becomes team and there's no possible way to work with anybody on the other side, that's a very dangerous place to be. And we have a lot of important things to deal with in our country that can't be dealt with by just half of us. So we got to get in the process of talking to each other in a in a in a respectful way, even when we disagree. And I think that this show is definitely exploring that. Yeah, and it's actually more a bit more balanced in its approach than I think people might have expected. Uh, so let's put the first, I mean, we're just seeing the first couple episodes now, but uh, uh, it's, it's a good point. Well, thank you, John Carroll Lynch. The new movie is Lucky. It is your directorial debut. The performance here by Harry Dean Stanton is unforgettable. And I have to say, on a personal note, I can't imagine a more perfect final film for any actor, let alone someone as amazing as uh, Harry Dean Stanton. So thank you so much for that. And uh, we look thank forward you. to more of your films. Keep up. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. It's a great time to get a great deal on a new car when you get approved for an auto loan from PenFed. Our Powered by True Car rates are as low as 1.39% APR on new vehicles. Finance for a longer term to lower your monthly bill, plus take up to 60 days to schedule your first payment. Join PenFed, and together, we'll keep you moving forward. Anyone can apply. Visit PenFed.org auto or call 1-800-247-5626. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for, and done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and done. Switch to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face and done. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.